I'm Melissa Fleming, and I'm the United Nations Chief of Communications, and welcome to this new season of my podcast, Awake at Night. This season is dedicated to the people at the United Nations who are at the forefront of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Extraordinary stories from those who dedicate their lives to helping others. My guest this week is David Beasley, the executive director of the World Food Program. I'm going to ask you, David, about your work shortly, but because this series is talking about COVID-19, which has really overtaken our world, you yourself were actually diagnosed with coronavirus in March. Can you just tell us what happened? I was traveling. Uh, I was on a f field trips in the Middle East and the Canada and coming back through the uh, Washington, D.C. And I was actually going home in my permanent home in South Carolina for the first time in like many, many, many months. You know how that is. We never get to go our real home anymore. And um, it was on March 13th on a Friday. And if you know anything about the South, March is when there's pollen everywhere. So I got home and everything was colored in yellow pollen. And so I thought, I started that afternoon having a little bit of an allergy, a little bit of a cough, a little bit of an ache and pain. And I'd just been tested twice negative for COVID. So I didn't even think it was that. And I'd, and I'd been really careful. And uh, well, Friday evening I had a little fever and Saturday and Sunday aches and pains, but not bad. But I still, I said, ah, oh, it's just the allergy. Monday I was feeling good. And uh, I got to thinking, I said, you know, I meet so many people, I better be careful. And I, I was at home, so I was kind of semi-quarantined. I wasn't seeing anybody anyway. And so Monday I went and got tested, and sure enough, it came back positive. And, uh, and fortunately, I was kind of quarantined anyway. And, but, you know, it never got real bad, but it just cycled for three straight weeks. I just couldn't get rid of it, but it was never like I'm about to die. I got to go to the hospital. Uh, it just kind of hung in there up and down and up and down. And so, you know, I, I was in one end of my house and thank God for pizza because my wife could slide it under the door, you know, and <laughs> she fed me <laughs> that way. And, and I literally was isolated for three weeks. But the good news, I was on my own home and my and we have a farm so i was able actually after about a week and a half i could walk outside and walk around because there was nobody within a mile anyway so that was nice i got very fresh air got some exercise and, and i took vitamins did the things you needed to do and of course at that point in time the world began going virtual and so then i began operating virtually and, uh, and i was probably one of the first i guess leaders around the world that had, had uh, gotten this particular virus, so everybody wanted to know. So time when I got it, I let my team, my staff know that, hey, I've got it, and please be careful. This is a highly contagious disease. Don't play around with this. Listen to the experts, wear the masks, distance yourselves, do those kind of things, you know, because as we now see in several months later, it's impacted the world. But I'm, you know, I guess I'm being a little bit dangerous to myself because I feel like I've got the antibodies and I'm invincible. And so I just feel like I can go anywhere and I still need to be careful because we don't know how long the antibodies last. But I have been out in the field and I did that intentionally because 
you know, everybody sort of hunkered down or had been sort of semi-quarantined and isolated working from home. But our people at the United Nations, they're out in the field delivering life-saving food, whether it's UNICEF, WHO, UNHCR. And I felt like, you know, I've got this immunity. I'm going out there and patting our teams on the back, say, keep going, but don't be reckless, be responsible. So anyway, uh, I'm glad it's behind me now. This virus, and I think it was even more mysterious in March when you had it, did you ever really worry that it could get you? You know, there was so much propaganda on the first few weeks. I mean, you just, you just didn't know. And not many people know this, but my background in studies was microbiology. So I had to some degree knowledge about viruses, infectious disease, and, and viruses, particularly the coronaviruses I was reading, you know, they do operate with a certain uh, consistency pattern. So I, I felt like, you know, all right, let me watch what I'm here, watch and listen to what's out there. And then you'd hear, like I'd hear a friend who got it, who was uh, like seven years old, was put in the hospital, recovering, getting better, then bam, would die. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. So it, then you started learning that this COVID thing, it takes strange turns and it is, is a little bit different than the standard coronavirus. And we were still learning about it. So the first week, you know, I was just like, I was okay about it. I felt like I was gonna be okay. But the second week, and I never really told anybody this, I started getting a little chest congestion. And, uh, and that really, really worried us because that's when you get into serious trouble. And so I, I have to admit, I mean, my family, all of us were praying really, really hard. And the next day it sort of went away and I, I felt relieved. But you, but you just never knew when it was going to kind of come back. Am I going to get into this lungs issue? And so we, we were just a little bit concerned because of that unknown and because it kept lingering. And, you know, I'm not a young young fella like I used to be. And I think, you know, I could do it, but hey, thank goodness uh, it is behind me. But uh, there were a few moments and points in time that we were a little bit concerned, but, uh, but you know, I I'm very grateful and I wish everybody could have the antibody and, uh, but everybody's got to be responsible in this one. It's very important. And, and take the vitamins now, keep yourself healthy. Be careful, not just in washing your hands and the mask, but take vitamins, eat right, don't get your immune system down. Uh, particularly if you're gonna be going out and doing things, be extra careful. And that's where a lot of my friends were like, you've gotta slow down, your immune system's weak because you're going and traveling all day and every night, like you know how the humanitarian world is. And so we have to be extra careful because I think our immune systems get a little weaker because we're, you know, how many all-nighters do we do every week, flying all night long and getting here and going right onto the field. And so that's our work. That's what really keeps us up at night uh, and keeps us up all night. <laughs> you come from South Carolina and it's really hitting South Carolina hard. So what would you say to your, you know, members of your community and, and friends and family across the state? Well, you got to just use common sense. Uh, distance yourself. Wear the mask. Wash your hands. Be careful. Don't get in crowded spaces, especially whether it's public transportation or, or without having all the necessary equipment, so to speak. And if you're aged or have any vulnerability at all, whether it's diabetes or any other issues, you have got to be extremely careful, extremely careful. 
Don't play with this disease. It is the most contagious disease I have ever seen. Thank God it doesn't have the fatality rate like Ebola. It's bad enough as it is, and we haven't seen the worst of this thing yet. I, as I tell my friends in South Carolina, I know my young friends want to go to the beaches. I said, look, you just be careful. Don't be silly. And when you go out at night, don't be reckless. Be careful. Because it's not just, okay, I understand. Young people hardly get sick from this thing, but some do. But even if you're asymptomatic or, or get it and you'd have very little symptoms, you can, you can carry that to your loved ones, your grandpa, your grandma, your elderly. So please think of others as you think about what you want to be doing from day in and day out. I know you've been locked down. I know you're ready to get out. But when you do get out, be careful. Think about others as well. Your focus at the World Food Program is... The, the vulnerable countries of the world. And, you know, you, as soon as you recovered, you went uh, to Africa and you visited people there. Um, you visited the uh, hubs where you're receiving the supplies on behalf of the humanitarian system and delivering them. What is it that you're concerned about most for those populations uh, when you think about this pandemic and also just your personal experience with it? Well, you know, the pandemic, uh, the COVID pandemic is in itself uh, just a huge global impact. And uh, what really got me concerned is this was unfolding globally. And it's hard to think of where we were mentally about three months ago. But everyone was just talking about it from a health impact. And, you know, those of us in the humanitarian sphere, we know if there's economic deterioration in the major donor nations, the impact that that ripple effects into developing nations can be catastrophic for a variety of different reasons. And so Tony Blair had called me uh, about two, two months ago and he said, David, what are, you, what are you seeing out there? What are you thinking? And I said, Tony, I'm really worried. I said, obviously I'm worried about COVID, but everyone's making decisions based only from a health impact. And I said, no one's looking at the broader spectrum of what's going to be the downstream ripple effect with regards to supply chain disruptions, economic deterioration, et cetera, et cetera. So I walked through several countries of what was going to happen over the next three, six, nine, 12 months. And Tony was like, oh my God, nobody's really began to think about that. And I said, Tony, well, we don't have a choice because we have to look to the future so we can plan ahead. And I said, it really is going to be catastrophic if we don't balance this right because it can't be COVID versus starvation. It, we have to work these two issues together because if we don't and don't plan and prepare and react to COVID right, we'll end up downstream more people, hundreds of more people times dying from hunger, starvation, et cetera, than from the disease itself. As someone said, the cure could be worse than the disease. So we've really got to get this thing right. And so now when I was speaking to the Security Council of the United Nations just about a month and a half ago, I said, let me help you understand what we're facing out there. We now have 135 million people you know, around the world that are on the brink of starvation. But with COVID, it's going to be 270 million people. And these are not people that go to bed hungry. These are people 
that literally don't know where their next meal is, that are on the brink of starvation. And if they lose their access to food because of supply chain disruption or because of economic deterioration in their own country, as well as donors who can't send it because they're doing major uh, economic financial incentive packages in their own, you know, revitalization packages, this is going to be absolutely horrific. We're going to be looking at mass starvation and death, mass migration by necessity, and exploitation by extremist groups. So the, the leaders around the world need to understand they can't take from this pot of funds to give to that pot of funds. We've got to step up so that we help everybody and maintain stability and peace around the world while we deal with this very contagious and very, very uh, deadly disease. I think to the Security Council, you used a term uh, that really caught the attention of the world uh, and made headlines. What was it? Yeah, it was uh, uh, famines of biblical proportions. Why did and, you choose uh, that term? Well, I think it was a, it was a more of a try to impact, effect, because... You know, and this is, I've been fussing, and you've heard me say this to the media in the last two years, and the media, so it's just been Brexit, 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 or Trump, Trump, Trump. And nobody's given the balanced attention to the problems around the world, you know, war and conflict and the poor that are really struggling from these issues along with climate shocks and climate extremes and, and poor governance, et cetera. And so I was looking for something that would catch the attention uh, beyond Trump and Brexit so that people could say, oh, my goodness, you're kidding me. So it's, you know, with the world's social media, it's harder to break through nowadays about what's happening, the people that are truly suffering around the world. And so we thought, number one, that that phrase would be real catchy. And number two, that it really does sort of, in a simple phrase, catch the reality of this is going to be catastrophic because we're going to end up with a COVID pandemic and a hunger pandemic. And together, it really could bring the world to its knees in a depression or even, even uh, I want to say worse, but it's bad enough as it is, but I'm afraid it's going to get worse. You just visited uh, places like Ethiopia and Sudan, and, and in your encounters there, was there anything that really just any personal uh, story that, that really moved you? You know, I, I, when I was a young kid, I dedicated my life. I wanted to help people, and I got that from my, my mom and my dad and well, the civil rights movement back in the 60s and in the 70s, and then I ran for the House of Representatives when I was a 20-year-old student, planning on going to medical school and this and that and, and uh, you know, so forth. And so when I entered into this role, because uh, I've always had a heart for helping people uh, around the world, and so I was... You know, not just in the last couple of months, but probably one of the most striking moments I've had at the World Food Program was an incident uh, when I was in Yemen. Uh, you remember there was the blockade and, and aid was not getting in, and, and I knew I had to get down there and jump up and down uh, to bring uh, to the world pictures of the reality. I just was not expecting to be as bad as I I saw. I remember we were in the, you know, most of the hospitals were shut down, but in this one hospital, uh, I remember walking into the room and, and you know, you see a little one or two year old and, 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 and there's a mother there and this hospital, it was silent. The babies were too weak to cry. 
And it was just heartbreaking from room to room. And I, and I walked into this next room and there was the mother and there was a baby with little feet sticking out from the blanket. You know, my, you know your instincts to go tickle the little feet and get a little laugh. And it was like tickling a ghost. It, it was just heartbreaking. And I, I, I don't think I've ever told anybody this other than maybe my wife, but you know, you got the entourage with you and they, they kind of standing out in the hall. I actually had to walk out with my head down and go around the corner and just tear up. It, oh, it was just so hard. And so I had to kind of get myself back together and come back in, but it was just so heartbreaking. Uh, and I've got so many stories like that. But you know, I think that's why we at headquarters, we've got to go to the field. Because when you see the tragedy and you see the heartbreak, it gives you, it empowers you from the depth and core of your soul to speak with all the passion in the world because this is our humanity. This, these are our little brothers. These are our little sisters. And we've got to go out there and be willing to fight for them. And so it gives you that extra passion because it's, it's so easy to get in headquarters and get stuck in the minutiae of the paperwork and all the ugh. But you get out of the field, you're just like, oh, this is why I'm here and this is what it's all about. And so... I'm always encouraging our leadership to go to the field, get out there. I know you've been out there 20 years ago and five years ago, but go out there again and feel it in the heart why we're here to help uh, the people. And so there's some heartbreak stories out there. But, you know, when I see those little girls and little boys' eyes in, in the most amazingly horrible places, you're thinking, how can they have a smile at all? And they're not in that hospital. And you be out there in the toughest place and you'll see those little eyes, a little smile on those little children. They have nothing at all, but boy, they have hope. And it just, oh, it rekindles your spirit to, to don't give up. You know, don't give up. Never, ever, ever give up. You, know? you mentioned your mother and you said that she was somehow an inspiration for you, not just to go to medical school and become a medical doctor, but to actually make a difference in people's lives. What was it about her? What did she teach you? Oh, I could go way back, but my mother was a, a social worker. And back in the days when, you know, social workers had to do it on their own. If you had child abuse and neglect at a home, I can remember literally when I was a kid and, my, and I was, grew up in a broken home. And so literally she'd get a phone call that you know, a woman was being beaten by her husband or whatever, and you're usually a drunken husband, and it'd be in the middle of the night. And I would be a little kid, and so I had to be in the car with her. So we'd go, I literally remember parking, and I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, but this was not an unusual story in my life at that time. And, and she would park the car, would the lights be off, and we'd walk and get in the ditch and hide until the lights went out or like the husband finally passed out or something. And she would run in there and grab the mother and child and run back out and we'd be running down the road. But she was just a fighter, a warrior. And she was a public school teacher. And she was a teacher during the, the big, if you remember the racial integration in the public schools in the South, my school was actually one of the first racially integrated schools in the United States by force. And so, you remember the school buses that were turned over? That was my school. And so we were a 99% white school. And then overnight we became a 99% non-white school. And I was one of the, my brothers and I, and one other family were the only whites that went to that school uh, at that time. And so my mother was a teacher. 
And so she was not going to back down from the, from the school system. And our family stood in there, and it was a tough time uh, back when. And so she, in, you know, just, just taught us by example you know, you stand up for what's good. You stand up for what's right. You got to be willing to, you know, take a hit in whatever the case may be. And so, you know, she instilled in, in me and my brothers this value of you do what's right and don't worry about the consequences. And that's, that's, uh, that's just the way it is for me. And, and I get in trouble sometimes at the UN for saying things I probably shouldn't have said. And I'll ask the, I'll ask the Secretary General, I said, and he might say, well, you might want to say it a little bit differently. <laughs> He's always coaching me to, to <laughs> but he said, don't quit being you, you know, because you speak a language that everybody needs to hear. So I'm still, I'm still learning. You began your career in U.S. politics before you joined the UN, and you were governor of South Carolina. How do you feel when you see injustice in your own country? You know, regardless of where it is, but you know when it is in your own country, it, it just, oh, it burns in you so deeply. And you're on the phone saying, hey, you need to get on top of this and need to get this resolved and bring the people together and this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, these kind of things keep you up at night. And yet, I want to tell my friends at home, I said, you need to see the tragedies around the world and let me, let me show you what happens when you don't respect one another. Let me show you what happens when you don't have equality and justice. And I said, we don't want to go there. We need to step up our game. And the United States has been such a model around the world. And, uh, you know, I, I still hope for the best and I believe America will make the right turn and get there. And uh, let's pray and hope that's the case because the world needs a strong America. The world needs for nations around the world to, to really move forward and get these issues in the rearview window. How did you end up you know, going from a governor of South Carolina to being in one of the key roles of the UN fighting global hunger? <laughs> well, you know, I got this phone call. And, you know, Bush, Bush and I had been very, very good friends. We were governors together. And and uh, then you get these phone calls when he's elected. Oh, what do you want to do in the Bush administration? And and I told Bush, I said, look, you're my brother. I love you. I said, but my ego is self-contained. I don't need a title. I don't need a cabinet position. I actually want to go home and spend time with my family, my children, because I'd been in politics all my life. I'd been governor. I had a business, but I wanted to really have some quality time with my kids. So I said no then. So when, when uh, this administration was elected, I get this phone call. I'm like, look, I, I told my one of my best friends I didn't want to work with him. I really wanted, I've been doing a lot of humanitarian work in the past many years. And I said, I want to stay focused on that because I'm very concerned about the world. And this was three and a half years ago. And then uh, I get this phone call from an old friend that says, hey, would you consider a position in the United Nations? I said, no way. <laughs> he says, really? I said, no, no. And I remembered my wife, this is no kidding, two days earlier, she said, I want you to commit to me that you won't say no immediately when you get a phone call. And I said, why? You don't want me going back to Washington. She says, no. She's just saying, I think the world's in trouble and needs reasonable voices and leadership right now. I said, all right. So I remembered what she said uh, when that phone call came in. And, uh, and it was a friend in the UN and who was very concerned about the Trump administration, you know, that they were going to be cutting the funds and things like that. And, and uh, so I called a friend of mine, and then, and, and, and as we were talking about the agencies, you mentioned the World Food Program, 
And uh, he knew I had a heart for humanitarian work. And um, so I called this former United States ambassador, Democrat congressman, who was sort of one of my prayer partners, uh, Tony Hall. And I said, Tony, tell me about the World Food Program. Oh, my God, if there's ever God's work on earth, it's the World Food Program. They help everybody, no matter your religion, your sex, no nationality. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I said, Tony, well, what about, you know, I always read that the world, the United Nations is not really efficient, maybe not as effective. He says, no, 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 no. The World Food Program is different, you know. And, I, I, and I've learned because I've always thought the UN ought to be here. And I had this image that it was sort of down here. And I found out it's actually somewhere in between and we're all striving to make it better. And I have found that, oh my gosh, the United Nations has got some of the most amazing people and programs you could ever imagine. And so that began the journey. And that's how literally it all started. I knew about that much about the World Food Program. But one thing I, I believe in is management and leadership and inspiring others because you can, uh, it doesn't matter if you're president of the United States or any country, you can't know it all. You've got to have great people under you, with you, and you've got to inspire them and you've got to empower them. And so when I got to the World Food Program, I was like, oh my gosh, you people are amazing, you know? And, and so I always ask him, what can I do to get things out of your way? What do you need to get the job done? And how can we at headquarters continue to support you so that you can continue to make a difference out there in the world? And so that was the, I know that some people don't like hearing that from a UN perspective, but you kind of have to know where I was coming from uh, way back when. And so now I really do believe that the United Nations is positioned in such a way to prove itself to the world that it's needed now more than ever. And we are going to deliver. We're going to get it done. Um, I'm sure uh, you energize a lot of people once they hear your passion. How can people help? I mean, what do you say to people when they say, what can I do? You know, and you get all these kind of questions, and it depends upon the individual asking. And I say, well, you can give money directly. Uh, you know, if it's private sector, for example, I'll say, look, you know, yes, I'm interested in getting your money. I said, but I'm equally more interested in your engaging in these communities. And one of the things I was speaking just the other day um, with about 50 CEOs around the world, I said, I said, you, I understand your shareholders want a return on investment. I said, but here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to go into the more difficult countries and be willing to take a less return on your investment over a longer time period to bring stability, growth, and opportunity and develop design systems that bring success that you've encountered and been able to be successful financially and otherwise. I said, if you don't do that, we can't get there. I said, please engage. I remember, and this is a... Uh, Scott Pelley, he was 60 Minutes. Uh, we were, I don't know uh, if you remember Scott Pelley, and, and Scott was, and I were talking, uh, doing a show one night. It was happening to be on Yemen. And at the end of the interview, and we'd taken the mics off, and Scott said, you know, wow, uh, you humanitarian workers, it's amazing what y'all do. And he says, and he said to personally to me, he said, Governor, you've got the greatest job in the world saving people around the world. And I said, Scott, I do. I really have the greatest job in the world. And my children tell me, Dad, we're prouder of you now than you, when you were governor. It brings tears you know, to, you, to your eyes. And I said, Scott, but I'm going, 
I'm going to say something to you that's going to bother you, and you haven't thought about it. And he looked at me like, what, what could that be? And I said, I don't go to bed at night thinking about the children we saved. <laughs> I go to bed at night thinking about the children we couldn't get to. And so when I don't, when my people, our teams don't have the money or the access, uh, we have to choose which children eat, which children don't eat, uh, which children live, which children die. I said, how would you like that job, Scott? And he said, oh my God. He said, I've never thought about it. I said, well, we don't have a choice because this is our job. And I said, Scott, it is the greatest job on earth, but it's heartbreaking too. And that keeps me up at night. It really does, because I'm thinking, all right, I got to raise more money. I got to get more access. I got to do this. I got to do that. And, but you know, there's enough wealth and experience and expertise around the world that not a single child should go to bed hungry or malnourished, not one. And uh, I know we've built systems in the last 200 years of sharing more wealth and less poverty today, less hunger today, percentage-wise, I mean, in ever in history, but we're still not getting to that 800 million, give or take, people. And we can't stop. We can't tear down the systems that's gotten us where we are, but we got to keep working. We got to keep tweaking it. We got to keep putting our heart because try telling that person who's not getting the food that the system's working. And so if one is left out there, it's one too many. And this is what I love about my friends in, in the United Nations and our NGO partners and others around the world. And, you know, whether it's uh, Henrietta Ford at UNICEF or Filippo Grandi or Antonio, I mean, they're, they're all just our, their family. And what can we do to inspire others to understand that we're not going to solve this at the UN by ourselves. We've got to inspire the world to take this on their own. Look to your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Where's your neighbor? And don't worry about the color of the skin, the religion, that we're all, you know, one humanity together. So anyway, anyway. Well, I mean, you answered my question, which is the, the title of the podcast, which I ask everybody I interview, you know, what keeps you awake at, at night? So when you are awake at night thinking about the, those who you're not able to save, what do you think about that gets you up in the morning? Well, I'm thinking about what's next. All right, what am I missing? What else can I do? Uh, who else do I need to call? Where do I need to go uh, to bring the attention? And, uh, and that's what a leader's got to do. It's just not about ch uh, checking boxes. It's thinking beyond the norm and saying, all right, what else is it going, particularly in environments like now where raising extra funds is not so easy. So you've got to be thinking of every stone that can be unturned and log that can be rolled over and see what can be done. And so I'm thinking about that, how to make sure our systems are stronger, make sure our teams out on the field get what they need. And it's a lot to juggle, as you well know, but it makes a difference. And I remember uh, when I had some friend of mine saying, oh, y'all don't care whether you're wasting money. I said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you something. My people out in the field, because we can feed a child for 25 cents. My people out in the field, they know if they can save $1 by being more efficient, that's four meals for a child. I said, that's how they think. And this person was like, you're kidding. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not kidding at all. I tell you, we've got the highest standard of anybody because it's not like in business. If you get it wrong, you might not make as much money. 
our responsibility, if we get it wrong, people die. And if we get it right, people live. And if we get it right more efficiently, more people can be impacted by us. So I think we've got the highest calling and the highest responsibility to be the most strategic and hold each other accountable as we move forward out there, whether it's in COVID circumstances or in times of peace. Do you have any regrets? No, 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 not at all. I try to ask myself three questions, uh, especially when it comes to major issues. Did I do what was right? Did I do what was right when it was right to do it? Because a lot of people won't stand for what's right when it will cost them anything. And the third is when I did what was right at the right time, did I do it the right way? In other words, did I do it with love and compassion or out of bitterness and hatred and divisiveness? You know, we can have differences of opinion, but can we promote our issues and stand for the issues we believe in in a loving, compassionate way that helps bring and brings people together, even if we have differences? And that's sort of, I ask those three things. So at the end of the day, you can say yes to all three. Then even if you failed in the eyes of the world, uh, you've been successful. And so anyway, I don't want to look back a week from now or a couple years from now and because I've had people say, oh, you're raising so much money. You need to take a break. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> I, we've got more people out there and, and this is what invigorates me and this is what I'm going to do. And or I'll have somebody say, don't say that at the United Nations Security Council. You will really go upset. And I'm like, please don't tell me that. That that makes me even more want to say something, you know. And so, you know, you, you, you can't. You got to stand strong, and you, but you got to do it respectfully. I think if you stand strong and do it respectfully, even when people disagree with you, they're like, you know, uh, that person stood for what they believed in and did it respectfully. And and I think that's what the world needs right now. Come together. I don't mean you have to agree on everything because I think diversity is amazingly beautiful thing. But we're one human or one humanity all together. David Beasley, that was incredibly inspiring. I thank you so much for sharing your history and your passion for helping the hungry people around the world. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for listening to Awake at Night. We'll be back soon with more incredible and inspiring stories from people working to do some good in this world at a time of this devastating pandemic. To find out more about the series and the extraordinary people featured, do visit un.org slash awake at night. On Twitter, we're at UN and I'm at Melissa Fleming. You can follow David Beasley on at WFP Chief. Subscribe to Awake at Night wherever you get your podcasts and please take the time to review us. It makes a difference. Thanks to my colleagues at the UN and to my producer, Bethany Bell, and to the team at Chalk and Blade, Laura Sheeter, Fatuma Keira, and Alex Portfelix. The sound design was by Pascal Wise, and the original music for this podcast was written and performed by Nadine Shaw and produced by Ben Hillier. <laughs>